wonder if I can ask you to capture that image again for just a minute of the song they just did of the other being in the fire, meaning whenever you're going through the heat of the intensity of the trial that you're in, God's promise is that he's right there with you and won't leave you. Jesus said, won't leave you, won't forsake you, even when it feels like it. You have to land on the reality of God's Word. And I think you're going to find that especially meaningful for the passage we're going to be working through this morning um, as we're doing these hard questions. Uh, the hard question this morning, is Jesus still fully man? And maybe you've never stopped to think about that. And perhaps you're wondering, does it really matter? And is there an implication for my life? And yes to all of the above. So, is Jesus still fully man? We're going to get to that in just a minute. So, I'm going to encourage you to go to, uh, if you have your Bible with you, Philippians chapter 2 and chapter 3. Maybe you have a hard copy with you or electronically. Maybe you're watching from home. Get your Bible out and go to Philippians chapter 2 and 3. And also, Colossians chapter 1. If you didn't remember to get the notes on your way in, they're back there by the pillar in the atrium. You might want to grab those. It would be very helpful to you to grab a set of those as we're diving into this. Before we go into it, I would love to pray with you, and especially just want to thank God for our nation, that we live in a land where we're free to worship, and it's Independence Day means something obviously very significant today. I personally still believe that the United States of America is the greatest nation on the face of the earth, and I'm grateful for it. I'm, I'm grateful to be in a place where we have the freedom to do what we do, and that so many people fought and died that we would have this liberty so I'm going to pray with you and thank the Lord for what we have and that he would speak to us through his word this morning. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Lord God, we come before you recognizing that you are supreme over all, you rule over all, and we're here this morning because we want to know more about you and who we are to you. And I, I pray, Father, that would be especially evident as we work through these passages this morning and address this hard question. That we're willing to admit that it goes way beyond our mind, Father, that it just kind of boggles our mind to understand what you did for us. So give us understanding. Give us enlightenment. We pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So let's hit this from kind of a soft launch, and then it'll get a little bit meatier as we get into it. Um, we'll start it out this way. What really happened at Christmas? We're told, according to the Bible, that Jesus put on flesh. The Scripture says He put on flesh and, and dwelt among us the way that John wrote it. So the question comes, is He still wearing that flesh? Is Jesus still fully man, did something change? So at Christmas time, He not only put on human flesh, but the Bible reveals that He keeps it eternally. In other words, it wasn't only for a 33-year stroll here on planet Earth that God the Son became Jesus the man, as impressive as that is by itself, that God would even do that to become human for 33 years. As impressive as that is in itself, and then willingly die on a Roman cross for us, the Bible goes even further and says that Jesus is forever the God-man. For all eternity, 
He continues as the visible image of the invisible God. You might be familiar with that passage. As you look on the screen, you'll see that last part of Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. And it's written in present tense. Everything you're going to be looking at this morning will help you to understand written in present tense. When John writes in the first century and says, He became flesh and dwelt among us, that's an ongoing process, ongoing action, I mean. So for God the Son, becoming Jesus the man isn't like He put on a uniform and then He takes it off as though He's only got this uniform for a brief window of time. He took an action forever joining His divinity with humanity for all eternity, fully God and fully man. And then you step back and say, okay, what's the meaning of that to me? Well, in order to get the meaning of it to you, we got to get our mind wrapped around what happened. So here's the first glimpse at this, at kind of the, this soft launch. Let me take you to Acts chapter 1. And in Acts chapter 1, the disciples are talking to Jesus. He's been crucified. He's been resurrected. He's on planet earth for 40 more days, hasn't yet ascended to the Father. And at the ascension, something remarkable is seen. Look with me on the screen at Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth." And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. Watch verse 10. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come again in the same way just as you have watched him go into heaven. So a large group of people, and they're all watching, and they see Jesus leave planet Earth, and two angels show up and say, what are you staring at it for? Well, I would be staring. It seems like, man, of course you'd be watching that. This same Jesus whom you've seen leave, according to what Acts chapter 1, look at it, there's just that last phrase, Acts 1.11, in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven, He's coming back again. This is so important to get your mind around this imagery that's being described here. He put on flesh and became human at Christmas, the incarnation. He died as a human. He's resurrected again as a human. He went up and ascended into heaven as a human in a body. He is in this very moment in God's presence in His humanity. And according to what the angel said to them, he will return in just the same way as you watched him go in his humanity. Philippians 2 describes the process by which God became man. We're starting right here at the beginning to understand this. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 2.6. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the Bible's saying, just as surely as God the Son became Jesus the man, when he put on this flesh, he keeps it. And let me show you how you understand that as you work through these scriptures. I'm trying to go slow enough here that everybody's going to get this. People after the nine o'clock service came and said, I got to go home and listen to that again now because you were moving so quick. Okay? I'm just trying to tell myself out loud, slow down a little bit. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, to Philippians 2 6. Philippians 3.20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. Pause right there. He's talking about your physical body. He says he will transform our humble body. He's talking about the body that you sit in right now. It's going to be transformed into an eternal state. You get to trade in this body. How many of you are up for that? Few of us. Yesterday, I'm popping the Aleve because I did things I shouldn't have done yesterday. And last night, my wife was trying to coach me as I'm trying to make my way from the sofa through the kitchen in a bent-over stoop because I did some things I shouldn't do. I got to the church this morning, and you're looking at a guy who's taken a couple Advil already this morning because I just decided in a series of events to do things I shouldn't have done that I would have done freely in my 20s and 30s. But now, older than my 20s and 30s, I can't do. And if you're 22 right now and you're thinking this is never going to happen to you, there's an auditorium full of witnesses that are here to tell you it's going to happen to you. You just aren't supposed to pick up those trailers by yourself and hitch them onto the back of a trailer hitch. And there's things that you need help with. And he's talking about that very issue. Paul's writing about this transforming your humble body, the body of our humble state into conformity. Watch that into conformity with the body of His glory. Jesus has been transformed, and He's talking about His glorious body. How does that happen? By the exertion of the power that He has, even to subject all things to Himself. The Lord Jesus did not shed His skin at the resurrection. He didn't shed His skin at the ascension. He still has a body, but it's a perfect, glorious body, a perfect body like one that we have not yet seen, have not yet experienced, but will. You will one day, by the exertion of the power that He has, you are going to experience a transformation. And you'll see why as we work through this. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 3.21, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. On top of that, Paul writes to Timothy about this reality. Look with me on the screen at 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And understand, church, this was written, Paul writing to Timothy after the ascension decades after the ascension. 
And yet he writes of Jesus in the present tense form, not past tense, the man currently Christ Jesus, who serves as the mediator before God on your behalf in human form. And his work continues right at this very moment as you sit here in this auditorium. His work continues at this very moment in his humanity. Now, we've just covered the soft stuff. Let me take you into the deep theological truths. Colossians 1.15, and this is where we started at the beginning. I told you I wanted to come back to this. And this is, this, this is describing the preeminence of Jesus. Verse 15, and he is, present tense, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos, I'll come back to that, of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself might come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Of all of the Bible's teachings about Jesus, Colossians chapter 1 is the most descriptive, most significant. There is none more significant than what you just read and what's being reported right here. It removes any confusion whatsoever over Jesus' true identity. First of all, hear the word firstborn, prototokos. I'm a firstborn son. In my parents' family, among my siblings, I'm the oldest son. That's merely the way that we would understand that on planet Earth. And so when we read that, we think, well, he's the firstborn, and, and people have been of error when they read it that way. That's not what Prototokos is describing. Prototokos is talking about rank in position. He's preeminent over everything. The firstborn, the Prototokos, the first in rank. Not that he was created, but rather first in place over everything. Here's why that's important. Paul is confronting a heresy here. He's writing to this church in a city called Colossae, and the book is called Colossians. And there's heresy that's going on in this city. There's a group of people who deny that Jesus is God, and they deny His deity. And then there's a group of people that deny that Jesus is man, and they deny His humanity. And so Paul has to confront it head on, and he's making it very emphatic in this rejection that there's any thought that you could deny Christ's humanity or deny Christ's deity. And so he points out in that little simple phrase, all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Just look at that phrase, for in Him, all the fullness of deity, it dwells in bodily form. Such an easy statement that just falls off his tongue. In other words, he's saying he's fully God and he's fully man. This particular Greek word that goes with this, somatikos, you have it in your notes this morning, it is talking about biologically, corporally, physically, when it says bodily. All the deity of God dwells in him in bodily, biological form. So here's a deep theological concept, hypostatic Union. 
And I'm guessing if we did a survey in the auditorium this morning or polled people online who are watching, most, probably more than 90% have never heard the thought of hypostatic union, and nor would they care to. But it's the meaning behind it. The meaning of hypostatic union is far easier than it sounds. The outworking of it, though, is utterly profound to get our mind around what's being described in hypostatic union. Here's where we start. We recognize that Jesus has always been God. That's what Scripture says. He's there from before the beginning because Scripture says He created everything. Look with me on the screen at Jesus' own statement, John 8, 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And it really ticked people off, and so they pick up rocks to throw at Him because they understand what He's saying is, I've always been, even before Abraham, and their response to Him was, well, how can you say that? You're not even yet 30 years old. You, you're saying you're older than Abraham, and they pick up the rocks to chuck at Him, and they want to kill Him because He's made the I am statement. I am God. I am older than Abraham. And we're hearing that the touches of hypostatic union. Add to that John 10.30 when He says, I and the Father are one. Well, we get that. That's all over the New Testament in which Jesus says that He is God. But here's the component. It's the incarnation. When you add the incarnation, adding the human nature to the fullness of God, the deity, the preexistent divine nature. And that's what John chapter 1 verse 14 captures. Look with me on the screen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, hypostatic union. God the Son becoming Jesus the man, two natures in one person. And that church sets Christianity apart from everything else on planet Earth, apart from Islam, apart from Mormonism, apart from Hinduism, apart from Jehovah's Witness, that Jesus is God. It's a profound, utterly incomprehensible thought that God could be in man, and yet that's what the Bible is describing here, the hypostatic union. Therefore, it says in Colossians 1.15, He is the image, present tense, of the invisible God. I'm sure that if you've looked in cameras, and really nice 35-millimeter cameras over the years, you've looked at icon cameras. And the word icon actually comes from the Greek language, icon. So the word image that's being used, when you look in your notes this morning, you look on the screen at the word icon, you're going to see that it's capturing this thought, a likeness. That's why the camera company captured that name to name their cameras after it. A likeness, or in this case, literally a statue or a profile or representation in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, it's used to actually describe the statue of the Antichrist. And we're told that Jesus is the icon, the representation, the resemblance. Now, add this layer to it. Although mankind is also the icon of God, you were made in His image. In the likeness of God made He them. 
we are not a perfect icon of God. We're not a perfect image of Him. We are human. We're not deific. So we're made in God's image in that, how, how this works out, that we have rational personalities. We, we specifically possess intellect, and we possess will, and we possess emotion. And with those capacities, we reason, and we problem solve, and we invent things, and we feel. All those things lead to choices. Now, sadly, we are not presently in God's image morally. We were, but we're not, because He's holy, He's without sin, and sadly, we are sinful because of choices. Also, we're not in His image in the way of His attributes. We're not omnipresent. We're not omniscient. We don't have those attributes, but we're still made in His image. The fall tarnished the image of God in us. Before the fall, Adam and Eve in the image of God, without sin, no death, no decay, and therefore made perfectly in the image of God. Here's something you want to say amen to, though. When someone, and I'm in a room full of many people who are like this, when someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, that one is promised that the image of God will be restored to them one day. This is a profound thought that goes with that. Watch Romans 8.29. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Paul's writing about eternity. He's writing about your future inheritance. In eternity, when you're conformed to the image of the Son, you will have the exact likeness of God in you. In other words, God's going to make you sinless. You're not sinless right now. Adam and Eve were sinless. They lost that because they rebelled against God. You've put your faith in Jesus. Jesus has forgiven you of your sins, and God is going to wipe out sin so that it's not even part of your nature. You will be sinless in eternity. And that's an astounding, astounding thought. So we come to eternity and we find that in the final phase of eternity, your future glorification is that God will make believers sinless upon entering the final phase of their eternal life. Why do I say final phase? Because you haven't received it yet. Eternity is promised to you. Say amen if you agree with that. Okay? It's promised to you. But you haven't received it yet, but it's going to be yours, and when it becomes yours, you will be fully inheriting the promise. Now, put all this together by going back to verse 15 in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the perfect, absolutely accurate image of God. He did not become the image of God at the Incarnation but has been that from all eternity. And we understand image means icon, the exact image or likeness. Take that and carry that over to Hebrews chapter 1. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. Now, here's a word that you use all the time, probably use it every day. It's a Greek word, caricature. We use character. Character. 
caricature is talking about being the engraving or the exact copy, the representation. So here's the last time you're going to hear this phrase, hypostatic union, from me this morning. Hypostatic union is a doctrine that we are incapable of fully understanding. It absolutely boggles our mind. And we should not expect to fully comprehend an infinite God. But in Jesus, the invisible becomes visible. That's what Scripture is clarifying for us. The invisible becomes visible, and He is the exact likeness, very God, of very God according to Scripture. That's why Jesus can say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Or Philippians 2, 6, the very form of God. Therefore, when He speaks or when He acts, He acts and speaks as God, the I am. And to consider him as anything less than that is blasphemy. The Bible actually says to see Jesus as anything less than God is the indication of a person whose mind is blinded by Satan. Now, other than fascinating theology and answering a hard question, how does this actually make any significance to my life. Hear this. The concept behind the hard question is both worshipfully mind-boggling and at the same time infinitely precious. You're about to pick up the cup and pick up the bread, the elements of communion. And when you pick them up, I believe that understanding this makes this absolutely worshipfully mind-boggling. The act of communion is worship in itself, and it's mind-boggling what we're about to celebrate. In Jesus, you discover unparalleled magnificence and significance for your life. Here's how I understand that. No other God, and I mean God small g, No other God satisfies the complex longings of a human heart like the God-man does. When I'm studying for this and I'm doing the preparation over these last few weeks and getting ready, I did obviously lots of research and I read many authors. And one of the authors I read, I forgot his name, and so I'm just going to have to call him unknown this morning, but I want you to see his quote that I captured. It's in your notes, and we're putting it on the screen for you. This quote describes exactly what I'm talking about here. In our finite humanity, we are significantly helped by a point of correspondence with the divine. God was glorious long before He became man in Jesus. But we are humans, and unincarnate deity doesn't connect with us in the same way as the God who became human. In other words, the conception of a God, small g, who never became man like Allah that Islam worships will not satisfy like the God who did become man. On one level... Jesus became human to identify with us. That's what Hebrews 2 says. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews chapter 2, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Now, the big mistake when you read that statement in Hebrews 2 is to think, oh, okay, now I get it. God, God had to be educated in order to understand what we feel as humans. That would be a big mistake because God's omniscient. He built us. He knows everything there is to know about us. God doesn't need to be educated. So why would he have to be made like us according to what it said? It's not as though God had to be educated, but rather so that we would know that he knows. We're finite. He's infinite. So that we would know that he knows what it's like for us to struggle. But on another level, much greater level, much more, so that he could pay the penalty of our sins. He'd have to become human to die for us. It's immeasurably sweet and fantastic and downright awesome to know that Jesus did this for me. Right now, you could say that quietly under your breath, for me. He did this for me, and he's remaining in human form for all eternity for me? See, the the union of God and man together is very personal for us in Jesus. The reason Jesus became the God-man, first and foremost, is to bring glory to God. Amen? First and foremost. But second, the second component is that he became the God-man for us, for me. His fully human nature joined to his eternal God-nature is permanent proof that Jesus, in perfect harmony with the Father, is unstoppably for you. I hope you believe that this morning. Unstoppably. Who else would go to that length for you? The God-man would. And so Paul got so caught up in this, and when he's writing the book of Romans, he says, did you know that God even demonstrated his love for you? Do you understand that he put it on display? This is what he said when he wrote Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Well, he couldn't die for us if he didn't incarnate and become flesh and flesh and blood would die. God did that for us, but it doesn't stop there. Here's the implication for this hard truth of Jesus remaining man as it relates to you. It relates to your eternal being, your eternal form in heaven one day, because you will be in a glorified human form. You're leaving this body behind. Maybe you've never read in Corinthians that way before, but let me show you this. 1 Corinthians 15. I, I put Adam's name and Jesus in brackets here just to help you understand this. The first man, bracket, Adam. He's the first man. The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, 
Jesus. Jesus is called the second Adam in the Bible. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, Adam, so also are those who are of the dust. That's us. It's talking about humanity. We're biological beings. And as is the man of heaven, Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. That would be those who are made of dust but have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And now Jesus is the Savior and has redeemed them. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, here it comes, future tense, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus, who is in present human form. And that's why Paul breaks out what he does next. 1 Corinthians 15:50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, and Mark won't have to take Advil anymore. And whatever you're taking, and whatever physical treatments you're going through, because of the reality of God's promise to you. This is astounding stuff, church, because flesh and blood cannot inherit immortality. Scripture says it right there. One more thought before we pick up communion. When I think of this next thought, I think of tattoos. I don't have any tattoos on my body. I've never taken one, but individuals, I understand, when they get tats, they're doing it to remember a moment in their life, something significant. And, and they want to express that. So excuse the analogy, but I'm thinking of tattoo when I think of this imagery from Revelation, and God paints a picture for us. When you die, or when Jesus catches you away, or when He comes again, you will see Him, and I do mean this literally, face to face. You will look upon him face to face. And when you do, according to the book of Revelation, you will see this one who is in glorious, permanent, fantastic, magnificent human form. But yet, he still retains the scars of his purchase price for you. The mark upon his body of the wound in his hand and in his side and his feet, according to Revelation, is visible for all eternity. John writes that when he saw this imagery, he said to the angel who was guiding him, who is this one? And he said, that's the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. That's why my mind kind of goes to the tattoo imagery that there's this permanent mark and yet on this permanent glorified body, this reminder of what He did for us, and the reminder is not there for Him. The reminder is there for you. We get the reminder right now in the form of communion. 
You get to lift the cup and lift the bread, and you're reminded of what he did. In eternity, you don't need communion table. You're right there with him. It's such a powerful, powerful image for us. So with that, if you're new to New Hope, our tradition here is to read a paragraph from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that tells us what happened that night at the Last Supper, and it sets us up to receive the elements. So if you would, allow me to read this to you from verse 23. Paul writes, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread or drink of the cup. Our tradition is to allow time for you to do exactly that, to examine yourself. And obviously, the communion table applies to believers. You wouldn't want to participate in it if you weren't a believer. But here at New Hope, we have open communion. You don't have to be a member of the church, but rather a believer in Jesus. And Paul's writing to believers when he says, you've got, you got to examine yourself. See if there's anything between you and the Father that you need to deal with. So this time right now for you, before you pick up the elements, either in the back or here in the front, examine and talk to the Father. And when you're ready, pick up an element, take it back to your seat, and I will talk you through the rest. But this time right now is for you. If you're able, would you stand with me? It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He held up bread and he said, this is going to represent my body, what it's been broken for you. In the same meal, he held up the cup, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which has been shed for you. Thank you, Father, for such visible, strong reminders at the beginning of this week as we take it on for ourselves that we would walk in greater confidence of who we are to you, that you did this for us, but also as we engage with friends in our social circles, God, that we would speak confidently about what we know to be true, who you are, and what you're willing to do to get us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the amazing truth you've showed us this morning. We praise you in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, and all God's people said, amen. Just a reminder before you leave, if you need somebody to talk with or pray with over in the prayer room after the service, you can do that. And if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. I'll be down here in the front. In the meantime, have a great week.